You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Well, welcome, all you wire nappers out there. Back here in the studio of Gangland Wire, I have on the Zoom and the audio call for the podcast Charlie Spillers from Oxford, Mississippi. And folks, it's going to be kind of nice to talk to somebody with a little bit of an accent more like mine than than all these northeastern Chicago guys I'm usually talking to. Welcome, Charlie. I'm really glad to have you on. Thanks so much, Gary. And nice to be talking with you. And I found out like you when I talked to people from up north that some people have an accent, but not me. <laughs> they do. I know. <laughs> I tell you what, I put up a podcast. It was really just the audio where I interviewed an Eastern mobster that people hadn't interviewed very much. And a guy named Michael DeLeonardo, who had a great New York accent. And some of those guys from New York, they just denigrated the shit out of me. <laughs> I never <have> comments on <laughs> about my Rube Cornpone accent. <laughs> just a hick from the stick yeah that's what they thought well i'll show yeah. them <laughs> i'm the one interviewing this guy not them <laughs> anyhow charlie has a career somewhat similar to mine he was a copper and he was a lawyer and now he's in the true crime entertainment business if you will correct charlie <laughs> I think you pinned it. You pinned it just right. So anyhow, uh, we always have fun on this show, by the way, Charlie. We like those fun stories. And he's going to tell us some fun stories out of his long career as an undercover officer and, and an intelligence officer, which, you know, I did intelligence most of my career. I never actually worked undercover where I passed myself off, made drug buys or anything like that. That was for those that that could handle it. I think more. I, I was a guy that would sit in the bar and be unobserved. And, and in case the shit went down, then I was there to do something or follow their guy there and follow their guy back and follow people around was more of my career. But you actually worked undercover, correct? I did, but don't underestimate yourself. <laughs> Sitting in a bar nursing a drink requires a lot of skill and talent. Yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> Repetitive training. Repetitive training. So anyhow, Charlie has written a book about his life called Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. And there is a certain toll in that life. We had uh, Giovanni Rocco on, and he talked about the toll. He was a New Jersey policeman, worked right. undercover quite a while on some of the East Coast mobs and and he talked about the toll that that took on his life. You know, this book, New York Times bestseller author Ace Atkins said about this book of Charlie's, Charlie Spillers is a natural born storyteller with a hell of a story to tell. So we look forward to having a hell of a story. We like to say this is out of the mouths of the men that did it. And you are one of the men that did it. Tell us a little bit about your background. Your first law enforcement career was with the Baton Rouge Police Department, correct? Right. That's right. By the way, uh, the other thing he said, the last part of that was, I don't know if Charlie Spillers was brave or just plain crazy. I think I go with the crazy, crazy part of it. Yeah. Yeah. i tell you what, a little bit about my background. By the way, the reason that I wrote the book, Confessions of an Undercover Agent, was because after my law enforcement career and while I was a federal prosecutor for 23 years, a career prosecutor, and I worked with dozens and dozens of federal, state, and local agencies and dozens of cases involving undercover, I came to realize that my undercover career was fairly rare. One, because I'd worked undercover so long, about 10 years altogether. And secondly, because I'd worked on, on so many different groups different types of criminal groups from 
drug traffickers, to smugglers, international smugglers, Dixie Mafia, auto theft people, things like that. And that's uh, so I, I thought it was a lot of interesting stories that the public would be interested in seeing. Oh, yeah, that's me. That's me. <laughs> Did I, I get just, you up there finally? I just saw it. There we go. I just oh. saw it. Yeah, yeah, Confessions of an Undercover Agent. Yeah. By the way, as you can tell, a haircut makes a lot of difference. <laughs> uh, I don't quite look like I, I looked then, right? That haircut no, makes you a lot don't. Of that does make a difference. By the way, my last undercover looked a lot different from that. During the almost last year I worked undercover, that's when I was working on a mafia-linked air smuggling operation and Mexican smuggling operation. For my last undercover, I was wearing a three-piece suit and I portrayed myself as a wealthy businessman, Memphis businessman, who was tied in with the organized crime in the Northeast. So yeah, that picture was me during a lot of my career, except for the last little part of that. Uh, Uh, Yeah. As I was saying, I wrote the book because one, I'd worked undercover so long and two, I'd had different types of criminal groups I worked on. And by the way, unlike a number of people worked undercover, there were some of us who went from identity to identity used, you know, I've used dozens of names and different cover backgrounds and all that. Sometimes it's hard to keep up with who you are. And sometimes you even look in the mirror, Mm -hmm. you try to remind yourself, but yeah, I fought as a Marine squad leader in Vietnam. And after that, like a lot of people who were in the service, especially Marines, I just missed the excitement. So I went to work for Southern Bell, but then took a pay cut to become a uniformed police officer. <laughs> you know, I did and, too. I took a pay cut yeah. to be a copper. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I joined the Baton Rouge Police Department. And I was on for about two months when the captain in charge of the new intelligence division came by to visit me at my apartment and wanted to know if I would volunteer to work undercover. Hmm. After two months on? Yeah, after two months on. And and one reason is because, you know, I wasn't very well known in the Baton Rouge area. And so I had no idea what that meant. But, uh, (laughs) boy, it sounded exciting. So I jumped on and said, yeah, I'd be glad to do it. And he said, well, don't report for your shifts. Stay away from the police department. Yeah, And so from then on, that started a 10-year career of working undercover. And my first assignment was basically to infiltrate career criminals in the Baton Rouge area, mm. which was, boy, you talk about a good target. Baton Rouge at that time was so good because you had the mafia influence out of the Marcello family in New Orleans. Right. You had organized crime involved in uh, gambling. And you had your high-level criminals involved in different things. And I wind up infiltrating a gang of safe crackers and burglars. Mm-hmm. Did yeah, they provide you with an informant? You know, by this year, you're kind of new in your career. So did they provide I'm, you I'm, with somebody who would enter right, you in and, right. and kind of stay, say, hey, this guy is okay. I know this guy. And then maybe right. you know, kind of cut him on out after a little bit, maybe. Or maybe he sticks they, with you for a while. How did that work? Exactly. They provided me with... With an informant, first of all, I worked undercover, and then eventually they got an informant who was on the fringes. Yeah, and I had him introduce me, and then cut him out. Yeah, and then then continued working. So primarily, except for a small period of the informant getting me into certain people, it was just me. And back in those days, you'll remember this. Back in those days. You didn't work with surveillance when you were deep cover. <laughs> yeah, no. Because you couldn't. You couldn't. Because, yeah, you couldn't. Because number one, surveillance couldn't keep up with you all day and all night. Yeah. 
without being completely burned down. And if surveillance gets burned down, it burns me. So no surveillance. And back during that time, no wires except for, you know, <laughs> something that was going to be a bad bus. So my career then was going to the strip clubs in Baton Rouge. <laughs> they were nightclubs. Yeah. And those were the clubs where the career criminals hung out. And they were like their unofficial headquarters. Yeah, oh, yeah. So I would... So when I would go in the afternoon, show up, they would be at their couple tables and wave me over. And of course, the owner and the dancers and bar girls, that's where we all gang. And you're part of this close knit group of nothing but criminals. So anyway, that's how I started. Did did they provide you with some like purported stolen property to get some stuff out of the property room or go buy a bunch of stuff to say, hey, you know, I got this in a score, you know, know, maybe you can give them a good deal on or anything. We've done that a lot here. No, none of that. Later on, though, when I was with the Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics, and I was working to infiltrate Dixie Mafia auto theft ranks. This was in Northeast Mississippi. And the Dixie Mafia, especially in different regions, were especially clannish. Yeah. And I mean, you just about so difficult to infiltrate them. We had uh, two sisters who were real thugs themselves. But one of them's daughter had been raped. A little minor daughter had been raped by you know one of the Dixie Mafia people. And they wanted to help. Well, they could get me into the fringes, but I knew people wouldn't accept me. So I had to, two women lay down stories about me. Mm-hmm. Oh, Mike. I was using the name Mike. Oh, Mike. Over in Alabama. Oh, my God. He's so bad. He'll cut off your head and shit on your neck. Mike is terrible. <laughs> I finally had to tell him, tone it down, though. Tone <laughs> really? it down, though. But anyway, they created this picture of me with the criminals before I ever showed up. Yeah. So I had them lay down stories for a couple of weeks. And then after I showed up, I went to Walmart. In another town, bought a brand new TV still in the box. I took it to a pawn shop, Bill Bondsman, who I yeah. knew was connected with him. Yeah. I told him uh, we had ripped my people in another state, had ripped off a truckload. Oh, I said, yeah. Oh, don't worry, it's not around here. No heat on around here. <laughs> yeah. But we've got, you know, my people have gotten rid of it. I've got a couple left. If you want it, I'll let you have it $30. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, he thought that over and he looked me over and he said, can you come by after five tomorrow when I'm close? And I said, yeah, yeah. yeah. So then another time I showed up at his place and I said, oh, come out here to the car. And I opened up the trunk and in the back were M16s. Oh, oh. Yeah. And I said, hey, I'm a friend of mine or somebody ripped these off in the armory in another state. Yeah. I'm taking them somewhere else to get rid of them. But let me know if you ever want one. Yeah. And, and as you can imagine, he went around vouching for them yeah, yeah. and connected me up with a couple of career criminals who later on showed me, uh, oh gosh, about 30 something or 40 big rifles and shotguns and AR-18s they had ripped off a collector. <laughs> they were trying to sell to me. And then one night we were driving through the back country of Mississippi at night, these back hills. And they were showing me a house. One of them said, that's where my grandfather lives. Yeah. And he's been ripping people off and doing this and doing that. He's got a safe and he's probably got a hundred thousand in it. (laughs) So we want to rob it. But even if we wore ski masks, he'd know it was us. But if you'll do it. And so they they, they want me to rob their, and and don't worry, he won't report it to the law. I mean, uh, my by the way, of those two initial guys that I got introduced to and ran around, the first of dozens, 
one of them, they got in a dispute between the two of them, and wind, one of them wound up shooting and killing the other. Oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh. Look, by the way, your viewers might be interested in a key experience I had when I first went undercover oh, in okay. intelligence. In now, now, that's a be in your book, right? Charlie, tell us about your very first undercover assignment. It was, uh, you, you told a little bit of it as a heck of a story. Go ahead, Charlie. <laughs> Yeah, as I was saying, uh, my first assignment in intelligence was to infiltrate career criminals and not to make cases, but to generate intelligence reports about who was doing what. And leads would be passed to detectives to follow up without them knowing where the information came from. So I'd infiltrated safe crackers and burglars, this gang of them that hung out at a particular bar, strip bar, which was their headquarters. One afternoon, I was I learned an important lesson about criminals. A very important lesson that helped me throughout my career. I was sitting at the bar with Randy of Safe Cracker. He was on the bar stool on the right. Between us was Candyman, his associate sitting on a bar stool. And while we're there, Randy says, hey, let me show you something. And he reaches on his shirt and he pulls out a blue steel 38. And he says, I got it last night. And he passes it to Candyman and looks it over. And Candyman passed it to me. And you know, I'm looking at it and I'm trying to see the serial number, but I can't inside the bar. So I say, uh, hey, Randy, Randy, I can use this. Here, I slip it in my pocket. Hey, I'll give it back to you tomorrow. You know, <laughs> figuring I'll get the serial number and yeah. write the intelligence report on it. Boy, it's like sticking a harness nest with a stick. All of a sudden, Randy got infuriated. Give it back, Mike. I was using the name, Mike. Give it back, Mike. Give it back. And Candyman turned to me and give it back, give it back. And I said, hey, man. <laughs> I can use it. I, you know, I'm playing the tough dude. I, yeah. I give it back tomorrow and I take a sip of my beer. <laughs> and as I'm putting it, as I'm putting it down, all of a sudden I feel oh, oh, in my right side, something's sticking in my right side. Yeah. And I look down and it's Candyman. And Candyman has his 38 stuck in my side. <laughs> and he says, give it back, Mike. Give, my, give it back. <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm thinking, well, he, you know, real fast, I'm thinking, well, he probably won't shoot. You know, we're in a bar. <laughs> yeah, probably, probably won't shoot. <laughs> probably won't shoot. And I, I said, hey, man, I'll give it back tomorrow. And all of a sudden, I hear click. <laughs> click. <laughs> you know, when you pull back the hammer of yeah, a bomb. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it. It doesn't make a loud click, but if no. the, the gun's stuck in your side, it makes yeah. a loud click. Click. Yeah. And, and, and that trigger I, is hair trigger now. Just a oh, little oh, touch of it. Oh, and yeah. That's how it's is off. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I look down and his fingers on the trigger and the oh, hammer's shit. all the way back and it's stuck <laughs> in my side. And real quick, quickly, the thought that shot through my mind. That's a word shot through my mind. Was, yeah, really. <laughs> he's probably not going to shoot me intensely, but you know what I'm worried about? I'm worried about, you know, the gun's just going to go off. Right, and I'm, right. I, look, quickly, I'm praying, please don't cough. Don't hiccup. Don't <laughs> anybody just walk past him and happen to really? bump him with your shoulder. Don't let your finger twitch. And I, I'm praying, don't let it twitch. And I said, okay, man, okay, I'll give it back. So what I did was, and I moved slowly. I wanted to do it because if I moved too fast, I was afraid to jerk on the trigger. 
So I said, okay, ma'am. So very deliberately, I put my hand down into my pocket and I pulled the gun out and I passed it past him below the counter to Randy and brought my hand back so he wouldn't jerk. Well, now here came the dangerous part. Here came the real dangerous part. (laughs) He uncocked it. Yeah. But he uncocked it with a steel in my side. Oh, and of course, your viewers know how you uncock a revolver. (laughs) You put your thumb on the hammer, pull the trigger, and you try to hold the hammer back and you try to lower it slowly because if the hammer slips, bam, it goes off. Or if you lower it too fast, bam, the gun goes off. So he pulled the trigger. And by the way, I I told my neighbor, firearms instructor, about this. Yeah. He said, Oh, yeah. He said, my gosh, on the range, I've had a revolver go off twice when I was trying to uncock it. Yeah. And so here he is. He's uncocking it. Boy, and my guts are twisted inside, and I'm praying, oh, thumb, don't slip. Oh, oh, don't blow it too fast. And you know what? It probably took maybe four or three seconds yeah. for him to lower it all the way until I could unwind. Now, think about this, though. Think about this, Gary. For you and I here talking, three seconds goes by like this, or somebody said, <laughs> watching a pretty girl in a park goes by like that. But if you're under the drill in a dentist's office, how long does three seconds long take? Huh? Three seconds. Oh, long. man, that was about a lifetime. I mean, ah, oh, yeah. oh. and finally he lowered it. Oh, as I was saying, I learned an important lesson. Yeah. Right then, early in my career about criminals, I learned that criminals. Don't practice firearm safety. (laughs) And unfortunately, and in my book, there's other examples of criminals not practicing firearm safety. But (laughs) I learned a lesson then. Well, after I gave the gun back, we were still friends again, but they could be vicious, violent friends at any moment. Yeah, really. And that was an example. By the way, we were talking about my career to just encapsulate that for your viewers. And I wrote about each of these in the book, a little bit about background part, but mainly the book is about 10 years undercover. But after serving in the Marines, I was with Baton Rouge PD for six years, nearly all of that undercover. And then I was with the Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics for 12, 13 years. And the first five or six years of that was undercover. After that, I became a federal prosecutor for 23 years. Mm -hmm. And while I was a federal prosecutor, I volunteered and served three tours in Iraq for the Department of Justice. Oh, really? As an yeah, as an attorney advisor to the Iraqi court that tried Saddam uh-huh. and other high-level regime leaders. And on my third tour of Iraq, I was the U.S. Department Justice Attaché for Iraq, mm-hmm. working with Iraqi governments of other nations and, of course, the military, the embassy, and all that. My work in Iraq was commended by the FBI director, by the deputy attorney general, by Britain's minister of state for the armed forces. And also, my work was commended by the British ambassador. Well, you know, and those of your viewers who have been in law enforcement know that we love those commendations, don't we? (laughs) I mean, we love them. And I used to think, I used to think those commendations meant something. But then I came back from the grocery store (laughs) back several months ago. Yeah. And as I got back from the grocery store here, I put the groceries on the counter and I turned away and my wife was going through the bags, putting stuff away. And behind her, I heard her say, the milk. 
I said, huh? She said, the milk. I said, what about the milk? He, she said, where's the milk? I said, well, it's in a bag. I don't see the milk. I said, but it's, no, I, the milk's not here. I said, but it's, no, the milk's not here. I, was, I said, but it's not. She said, no, you forgot the milk. I said, but, 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 but. I've been commended by the British ambassador. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <A> whoop de doo <laughs> She said, I don't care. You forgot the milk. And so. I mean, that was a good reminder Yeah, that no matter how many commendations you've received, no matter how many thousands of copies your book has sold, you still have to remember, one, what to pick up at the grocery store. Number two, you still have to put out the trash can on trash day like I did this morning. Yeah. And you still have to pay full price, or in my case, senior price for a cup of coffee somewhere. So those commendations don't mean much. Yeah, and really. as your law as your law enforcement viewers know, one all crap letter wipes out a dozen data boys, really? right? Yeah. <laughs> hey, we know about this from the profession, don't we? Yeah. And I'll tell you what, it doesn't matter what kind of danger you get yourself into on the job. When you go home, you still have to remember to go get the milk. They don't even want to hear about that danger shit. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. My wife used to ask sometimes, especially about a rock, isn't that dangerous? I said, dangerous? I said, hell, if it was dangerous, I wouldn't be going. (laughs) You must be married to a saint like I am. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Somebody once said, hey, when you were working, did anybody ever shoot at you? And I said, you mean they shoot at you? Man, if I'd known that, I never would have done that kind of work. Really? Really? <laughs> so when you were working in a Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics, did, I guess, did you have much, you run into any mafia guys out of New Orleans involved in narcotics? Or was it Mexican cartels primarily? You got some stories out of that? Well, uh, the link, my link to the mafia was an indirect link. I never dealt directly with the mafia guys, but what I did deal with undercover were pilots that flew in plane loads of dope for the Marcello uh, mafia family. And I got introduced to one of the pilots up here or a couple of them up here in North Mississippi and pretending that's when I was pretending to be a wealthy Memphis businessman tied in with organized crime in the Northeast. And the good thing about it is the pilot just totally trusted me and told me all about what he was doing and when the next plane load would be and the organization that he worked for and things like that. Basically, the Marcellos had about six crews flying in plane loads of drugs for him. And the crews would fly down to Jamaica and other countries and fly back like 1,500, 1,600 pounds of marijuana or fly back other drug cocaine. Mm -hmm. And this particular pilot was getting like a set fee per trip which was, I forget, it was something like $60,000 per trip, which isn't today's money would be about, oh, maybe one hundred fifty, two hundred thousand yeah. per trip. But good thing about it is he would tell me, thinking I was going to buy a plane load from him on the side, he would tell me about what he was doing. So we were able to identify airfields down on the Mississippi coast, Louisiana, and other places where he had contacts or had people at the airfield yeah. uh, bought off and where they would regularly fly in loads. So that's how I connect. He flew down while I was dealing with him. He was telling me about a trip he was going to take. So uh, he flew down to Jamaica and on his way back, he ran into headwinds. He was flying a twin beach aircraft. On the way back, he ran into headwinds, ran low on fuel, and he landed in Belize. And the authorities in Belize at the airport 
seized the plane with 1,600 pounds of dope marijuana on it and arrested yeah. him and his co-pilot. His partner here called me and said, oh, Mike, I was using the name Mike again. He said, Mike, here's what happened. Well, the day after they got arrested in Belize, the Learjet left New Orleans with, I think it was eight people on it, including an attorney who had done a lot of work for the Marcello organization yeah. and a couple of other people with Link. They flew down there. They were sitting in the courtroom whenever this guy had his hearing, you know, a day or two later. Yeah. And he was down there. The pilot I dealt with, his name was Mahaffey. He was down there for about a week and a half, then made his way back to the U.S. and met with me and told me all about it. <laughs> and he said the people that flew down tried to buy up all the paperwork so there'd be no record of being arrested. Yeah. But he said they weren't able to buy up all the paperwork, but it turned out good that he got arrested. He said, because we made contact with a minister in the government. <laughs> and we could probably in the future just fly to Belize and pick up plane loads there, but we'll have to wait a while. And then he went on to explain that he was supposed to be in jail or prison for 90 days in Belize, but the Belize authorities secretly took him to the Mexican border and let him loose, you know, after his people paid money to yeah. take care of all that. But anyway, he was telling me about all that. And then later on, later on, some of those same people that were in that leader jet flew to, I'm trying to remember, I think it was Grand Cayman. And they came back. And when they came back and landed at the New Orleans airport, customs found envelope with 150000 in cash. None of the men on the plane would claim the money. <laughs> yeah. Finally, one of them who was an attorney finally said, okay, I I'll claim it. He claimed it. Well, what happened was about a week later, a couple of men who were on that plane went to Oklahoma and paid, I think it was 180000 cash for an Aero Commander airplane. Mm. And then the guy I was dealing with, that was going to be his plane. And then he took off on another trip to Jamaica to pick up a plane load. Only by that time, we had a transponder on the plane. He was being tracked. Wow. When he flew back, here's another mafia connection for you. When he flew back, he landed at, I believe it was Franklinton, Louisiana, just briefly. And the bales were offloaded into vans. Mm -hmm. The tracking plane and customs were behind him by a few minutes. And they saw the van leaving. And they were able to have agents follow the van. And meanwhile... He flew the empty plane to Diamond Head, landed it there, and they cleaned it out and vacuumed it out, put the seats back in it. Yeah. And he got in his vehicle and drove back up to uh, North Mississippi where he lived. Meanwhile, the agents that night, they had followed the load to where it went, and it went to this warehouse built in the middle of the woods. And that night, DEA, Louisiana State Police, and other agents hit it, and they got about 750 pounds of marijuana. The rest had been gone. They got that. They didn't seize the plane because if they did, that might tip him off. Yeah. That infiltrated. But they seized the dope. After they seized the dope, and I met with the pilot Mahaffey, he was telling me about that. He said, here's what happened. He said there were two boatloads that brought in tons of dope via Pontchartrain, Lake Pontchartrain. Yeah. And he said they went to the warehouse. And he said, we think what happened is one of those boatloads of dope was tracked. Mm -hmm. And by the time they hit it, all the boatloads were out, and part of my load was still there. And I said, oh, okay. <laughs> thank, you, thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Jesus. By the way, one of the eight or nine people who were arrested at the warehouse was Nofio Pecora Jr. His dad was a capo for the Marcello Mafia family. And his mother, his dad was a capo for the 
Marcello Mafia family. And his mother, despite those organized crime connections, his mother had been the state insurance rating commissioner. Well, that, that tells <laughs> Politics you, and their mom. <laughs> yeah, that tells you something about Louisiana. But interestingly enough, after he got arrested, I believe it was his mother. One of them was caught trying to bribe either the sheriff or the DA and charged. Meanwhile, the Capo's son fled, and he was arrested in London 13 years later running a uh, pub. And as I wrote in the book, as I wrote in Confessions of an Undercover Agent, one of the newspapers in the country had the best, most creative headline. It said, Grog Father Arrested in London, instead of <laughs> Godfather, Grog Father. Anyway, that was some exciting times. Uh, yeah, really. I see here, uh, Onofrio, Nofio Pecora Sr. Right. was a longtime capo, and this was his son. That was his son, yeah. Uh, that was his son. And yeah, here's one silver lining about drugs. There's not really any. But the one thing about it is, as the mob and some organizations started getting into drugs and had not been into drugs before, it was bad news. But it also gave law enforcement opportunities to make cases on people that they couldn't have gotten to through yeah. other crimes. That wound up. Yeah. I, they, I they were uh, also that that family, according to this case I found online, they were involved with insurance. She was the state insurance state commissioner, rating insurance commissioner. Yeah. yeah. And they did some kind of scam. I won't go into some kind of scam with insurance. So I'll tell you what, the mob and politics, you can't have a mafia family, successful mafia family without the political element. And they don't survive very well without the political right, element. Right, right. That's that exactly away. right. By the way, when I worked undercover on the Gulf Coast, prior to being a wealthy businessman in uh, Memphis, <laughs> when I started working undercover on the Gulf Coast, I drove a taxi as a cover mm-hmm. to break into the heroin trafficking groups down there. I drove a taxi, and then I started laying down a story that I was waiting on this big insurance settlement. I was telling the drug traffickers yeah. that. And then finally, I was real happy because I got it, and I could quit driving. I started driving this big Lincoln. That was back in the days when the Lincolns looked like a big cabin cruiser going oh, down yeah. the road. You know, yeah. they're about 30 feet long. And when you went to make a turn, it was almost like turning a ship. I mean, those things were huge. And yeah. I, I had all the money in the world to buy heroin. But back during the time I was working on the coast undercover, the coast was populated not by casinos, but by strip clubs. Mm-hmm. And Dixie Mafia was very active. And the Marcello organization and the Trafficana organization out of Florida, mm-hmm. as I remember, they had an agreement to share the Gulf Coast. So they had their own interests. And of course, the sheriff, Leroy Hobbs, there on the Gulf Coast was one of the people that uh, was connected with the criminals. And later on, DEA or the FBI was able to make a reverse undercover case on him uh, involving dope. But the coast was wide open back then. And like I say, the Dixie Mafia and two Mafia families were very active during those times. In fact, I, I remember one of the guys I was working on, Dewey D'Angelo, who had a bar. I had to stop working on him after a while because he wound up in the trunk of a car with a few bullet holes in his head. You know, the typical type thing. Yeah, yeah. Anytime you find a guy here north of the river shot up in the trunk of his car, <laughs> you, you know, it's probably a mob hit the same way down yeah. there. Let's talk just a minute about this Dixie Mafia. There's 
I know I've talked with, there's a lady, uh, Sonova Cantrell, that has written a book <laughs> on the Turksy Nicks and some oh, people yeah. like that. And I'm sure you've heard of them. And I think they were responsible. They, they killed a judge and his wife down there, yeah. in a, kind of a mistaken deal that the judge's law partner had taken some money from one of them from, I think, this yeah, Nick. They're sharing. The Sherry murders. Yeah, yeah, the Sherry murders. And so kind of like, I know there was an attorney general in Kansas that wrote kind of an intelligence report about the Dixie Mafia. And, and it's, you know, kind of in, in from your view, you know, how would you define that? How would you explain when you say the Dixie Mafia? It's not this pyramidal kind of a thing that goes all the way to the commission in New York City, like the La Cosa Nostra Mafia. It's a little bit right. different. So how would you explain that, Charlie? Well, I'm sure you're familiar with Gary for your viewers who are not. It's primarily a network right. of career criminals. And on this network of career criminals spread across several states, primarily in the South and Southeast, but very active in surrounding states. They'll come together tightly in some close knit conspiracies to commit this crime or that crime. And then they'll filter back to what they're normally doing. Okay. And then when somebody else has something like, like, for instance, in Mississippi, let's say here in North Mississippi, let's say one of them in a small town going by something that's actually happened. Let's say one of them in a small town south of Oxford gets in touch with others in Oklahoma around the country and says, look, there's somebody lives out here in the county that I think probably has a safe and a lot of money. And I can't do it myself, but I need somebody to come down you know, and do the robbery and or killing. And then the others will come down and they'll go break into the house and do the robbery with ski masks or do the robbery and murder and then leave. Mm -hmm. And there will be dead bodies and there will be no clues. Or there'll be somebody who's been robbed and may be able to report it or may not because maybe the money, like the guy's grandfather, maybe the money there accumulated wasn't completely legit. So they'll come together for things like that. Okay. And they'll call on others for hits. They'll call on others for armed robberies. They'll rob poker games. They'll rob uh, residences, especially. They're some of the most violent criminals, but they're violent. They will keep. Now, by the way, the people I was dealing with, I wrote about this in the book, people I was dealing with in Northeast Mississippi who were part of Dixie Mafia auto theft rings, they would, I think I wrote an example in the book that in just one week, the people I dealt with had told me about this, this, and this, and that. I mean, so many crimes from child pornography to insurance fraud to, to burning down a house or trailer you know, after taking the good furniture out to collect insurance money or an insurance person in connection with them or a law enforcement sheriff or officer they had paid off. That's in the book about just one week of that. There was so much stuff they were doing that it was hard for me to keep up with in the intelligence <laughs> reports. I was buying stolen cars. I, I think I'd bought about 20, about maybe almost 30 stolen cars from wow. uh, Brand new BMW stolen off the lot in Chicago and brought straight down a tractor trailer truck, a full 200 boxes of furniture from a furniture plant in North Mississippi. The truck and the furniture for like $4,400, dynamite, sawed off shotgun, buying stuff right and left. It was hard to keep up with them. But these same Dixie, these same people I was dealing with, they would sometimes brag to me about killings and things like that. And as I pointed out in the book, citizens every day you know you get up and you're cutting your grass and you're going to work you're going perhaps you're going to church on sundays and you're doing this and doing that 
Well, below that layer is the underworld. Yeah. And the underworld, as you know, and many of your listeners know, the underworld is composed of career criminals. And 24 hours a day, seven days a week, all they do is prey on honest people. And they steal from them, they hurt them, and sometimes kill them. But that's all they do. And when we're in law enforcement, here's the great thing about it, Gary. When you were working in law enforcement, and when I was working with uh, Baton Rouge PD and MBN, later on as a federal prosecutor, good thing about it is we get to target people like that, right? And work on them and try to make cases on them. And the key thing about that is you were in intelligence, I was too, is you have that intelligence and you know you know who the most, most violent criminals or the biggest criminals are, career criminals. The good thing about it is you know it through your intelligence collection and you start working on them to try to make those cases. And it's satisfying to be able to take people like that off the streets. As I tell people, the people we work on, they're going to be committing crimes as long as they're not in prison. And in prison, they'll be preying on other people, but they won't be committing crimes. So I think one time at a drug trial, as a federal prosecutor, after the guy was convicted after trial, the, his defense attorney says, well, do you think you're going to solve the drug problem by sending my client off to prison? I said, no, but I know he won't be doing it. <laughs> well, look, think about it. Same thing applies to burglary. Do you think you're going to solve the burglary problem by sending my client to prison? No, but he won't be doing it, right? Right. He won't be doing it. So anyway, it's great and satisfying to be a professional in law enforcement, working on professional criminals and career criminals like that. The kind of 20% who commit 80% of the crimes are responsible for 80% of the crimes and get those people off the streets. When we worked on the street gangs, Clarksdale, Mississippi, a little town of 20,000, you know, small town of 20,000 might normally have maybe eight armed robberies a year. Yeah. That town in 14 months had 77 armed robberies, 77 in a year. One convenience store got robbed twice in the same night. The police had just left from taking care of a prior when an hour later, another group of armed robbers, the gangs had overridden that town. They were looking into buying an anti-tank weapon, shoulder fired to blow up a police car. (laughs) They were looking into buying night vision goggles, and they already had uh, automatic weapons, fully automatic AR-15, and they would run armed patrols at night in their territory. Seven or eight of them would put on dark clothing. They would get their automatic weapons, Mm -hmm. and they would go on patrols through the alleyway of their territory. And every now and then, they would go to an opposing gang member's house. At night or early morning hours, they'd surround the house, and on the count of three, they'd blast away. I mean, they had dominated the town and overrun them. The good thing about that is working with the PD and others, we were able to identify the main trigger pullers, and we were able to make federal cases on them to where they would be picked up, taken from Clarksdale to Oxford, and held without bond because they were dangerous, held without bond pending trial, instead of under the state system where they would get arrested an hour later, be back on the street. So we started working together. We started having that impact by taking trigger pullers off the street. And after a while, when we'd be out at night and we'd tell somebody on the street, well, you know what happened to you if we take you to Oxford? They'd say, yeah, (laughs) we ain't coming back. And we said, yeah, that's right. I mean, that's what it takes to have an impact, a concerted effort of everybody working together and just focusing on the 
most violent people. Yeah. But that, anyway, it's kind of the same I, thing that happened in Kansas City. Now, this had to be during this time when the well, we formed a task force called the L.A. Boys Task Force, because what happened was the street gangs in L.A., they started coming out because there was such a concentration and they went back to some of where some of their families came from. That'd be Kansas City, Baton Rouge, New Orleans, Portland, right. Omaha, throughout the Midwest. Their families had gone out to L.A. maybe for the last generation, but they had relatives back here. So they started coming back and they brought those L.A. ways with them and that organization with them. We had the same thing here and started and they had this line set up to get drugs, get cocaine and the crack cocaine thing was going on at the time. So it was, yeah, there was some dicey times there in the 80s. And oh, yeah. Especially the 80s. And we worked out here in Kansas City. And plus, Jamaicans came to town, too, and had this line of narcotics already to go in here. And it was, it was some violent times in the 80s. And, and you're right. You have to work with the feds, get that five-year sentence for that possession, felony in possession of firearms, a big one. Boy, that's when they don't come back because they set a high bond on it. They just don't come back for a long time. Right, right. Oh, those, those federal tools are so good. Yeah. And having been with the PD, having been with the state, really appreciate the tools as a federal prosecutor and being able to use them. I, I felt like an investigator with subpoena power. I mean, <laughs> it was great to work on people like that. But violent street gangs, they require a concerted effort. Yeah. And the little town I was talking about, Parksdale, they had, it was either seven or eight different street gangs, several forms of vice lord, gangster disciples, and the vice lords were connected straight back to Chicago. Chicago, yeah. And they had their, I forget what it's called, their writ or manifesto or whatever it is, straight from Chicago, and sometimes their beefs would go back up that way. Yeah. But they were involved in a lot of murders, a lot of drug trafficking. But we were finally able to disrupt and dismantle street gangs and drive the violent crime, crime down. Now, after we spent two years doing that and were highly successful, we let up and left it back to the locals. Unfortunately, after a couple of years, though, it crept yeah. back up. It's the kind of thing that you have to stay on. Yeah. Kind of thing you have to stay on. I'll get off my soapbox. Okay. Now, Clarksdale, that's the crossroad. Those of you who are blues fans out there, they have the, uh, I think it's got the National Blues Museum and the, what's the place that uh, Morgan Freeman owns down there? It's like a modern uh, kind of a club, Jeep joint. Yeah, Club, no, uh, yeah, uh, club Zero. Club Zero. zero ground, uh, ground Zero. Ground Zero. Yeah. And the Blues Museum down there is really cute quaint little town. And supposedly uh, there's a guy named Robert Johnson who sold his soul to the devil down at the crossroads, which was in Clarksdale. They'd be the best blues player ever. Now, just a little aside, folks, for you blues fans out there, it's Clarksdale, Mississippi. Right. And then you had uh, West Helena right down the road a piece. They always have the, what's that? The King Biscuit. Oh yeah. Blues uh, festival every year. Have you ever been to that? <laughs> I'm looking uh, on my wall. There's a poster from the 1988 King Biscuit <laughs> Blues Festival. My son and his fiance had gone to it brought back that <laughs> so oh, this, yeah. area, this area is colorful to say the least oh, you is. know you got the dixie mafia now you got street gangs coming in you've got this long time blues history you know highway 61 goes right down through there bob dylan song highway 61 revisited i mean it's a really cool area and oxford is the coolest town you ever wanted to be in i'll tell you folks it's like you went back to us 
a southern town in what the turn of the century southern town or maybe even a little bit earlier it's a really quaint not quaint maybe a romantic kind of an area that northern mississippi i love northern mississippi charming charming Charming. that's a good word that's the word i was looking for holly springs like i said and you know they say memphis is the biggest city in mississippi is that right (laughs) (laughs) i think that's about right you know Gary oxford is such a great place that when i was federal prosecutor, the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Virgin Islands wanted me to transfer down there. And I agreed. And we were just four days away from getting on a plane to go down and find a house in the Virgin Islands. Oh, my God. Transfer. (laughs) And now four days before we we were to do that, I called the Virgin Islands, the U.S. Attorney's Office there and said, Gosh, I've changed my mind. I'm sorry. We just can't leave Oxford. Life (laughs) is too good. Life is too good. (laughs) Yeah. You know how that is. I was very pleased because soon after Confessions of an Undercover Agent was released, by the way, it was published by University Press of Mississippi. Yeah. And which which, which is, uh, yeah, which a lot of people don't know. And I didn't know until when I got involved with it. That's the publishing arm for our state university system, our eight state universities, Ole Miss, Mississippi State, six other state universities. They published Confessions of an Undercover Agent. Soon after it came out, it was declared, Amazon declared it the number one release in law enforcement uh, books. And Mississippi keeps track of the best-selling books in the state. Uh Every week they release the top 10 list of the best-selling books. And it was on the top 10 best-selling books list for about five or six months after its release. And it kept reappearing on the list year after year. And in fact, I was at Square Books yesterday signing more copies of it that had just come in. Uh, it's been out several years, but it's as popular as ever, which I'm thankful for. Yeah, yeah there I am. A haircut does make quite a difference, <laughs> doesn't it? I mean, man, it's almost, a, it's a, almost hard to see you and <laughs> looking at both of them. Like, well, I guess that's him. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I guess, I guess you him. got a little older too. <laughs> yeah. I think you're right. By the way, for the people who haven't gotten the book yet, there are photographs in the book itself, right in the middle of it, of um, from undercover and from okay. um, later on, in, uh, and also from Vietnam, and later on as a federal prosecutor. The book I put just a few pages about Vietnam, yeah, because the publisher wanted me to put a little bit of background. Oh yeah. Uh, one other thing about the book, by the way, I wrote about other agents too. I worked with some of the most extraordinary and the most courageous agents ever in Baton Rouge and with the Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics. And I wrote also about their experiences. Oh, uh, cool. A lot of good stories there, in there. Oh, there, there are. They're not only my friends, but they're people that I admire and people who I think everyone would agree are real heroes, just amazing people. Okay, Charlie. Folks, the book is Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventure, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life by Charlie Spillers, who we've just had on the show. And get to Amazon.com. I'll have links on the uh, show notes to take you right to the Amazon page. If you want a, a signed copy, uh, probably have to go down to Oxford, uh, Oxford, uh, <laughs> Mississippi to the Square Books. And I want to tell you something, that Square Books is the coolest bookstore I was ever in also. that I just love Oxford, Mississippi. <laughs> oh, by the way, Gary, that, uh, you might be aware of the fact, ah, Square Books 
was recognized by the Independent Booksellers Association as the number one bookstore in the nation. I believe I mean, it. it. It is remarkable. And if you do want that book signed, how about if I meet you in Destin? Would you do it, Dave? <laughs> <laughs> really? Well, I'm going. I'm I'm going down to Cocoa Beach here later on in the year. So. <laughs> Oh, well, good for I, you. I tell you what, well, if I ever well, get down to, back down around the Mid-South there, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look you up, Charlie. <laughs> oh, look, do that, and we'll get ever, together for lunch, dinner, beers, yeah. or whatever. If you we'll tell us, to Kansas City, well, you ever have any reason to come up in Kansas City, be sure and give me a call. I'll do that, and thanks for having me on your podcast. All right, Charlie. Well, been, a been a pleasure. been a pleasure. Thank you. Nice talking to you. Bye. Thank you, Gary. Well, folks, that ends a, another Gangland Wire episode. Really appreciate you tuning in and listening, however you listen to it, whether it's on the website or on one of the apps. I also want to express my thanks and sincere appreciation for the kind reviews that you've given me on the app, or the Apple app, or, or some of the other podcast apps. I used to check them when I first did this. I checked them a lot, but I don't check them anymore so much. Once in a while, I look at them. Sometimes I get my feelings hurt, especially on YouTube, but that's okay. If you put yourself out there, you better not have a thin skin. I've learned that. My most recent documentary, I really want to express extra appreciation to the people that stepped up and helped me finance that movie and enable to increase the production values, hired a professional to do the reenactment scenes and some of the other things and got some better music I had to pay for. And we have it out now. Now, the last time I did one of these endings for the podcast, I had a different title. I changed the title just at the last minute. It's now about theft, burglary, murder, and cover-up. So I encourage you to come on the website. I can't get it on Amazon like I have Brothers Against Brothers and Gangland Wire because they changed their rules. And if I can't get a theatrical release like a major film studio or get it in a major film festival, which is kind of like, I don't know what it's like. It's dang near impossible unless you're politically connected to some of the people that run these film festivals. And a guy like me doesn't really have a chance. It's been my experience. I fought that a few years back and I gave up. It's too much effort for too little payoff. But if you want to stream it, it's on my website for $1.99. I figured out a way to do that. And you pay me $1.99 and I will send you a link to stream it. As well as my other two movies, you want to stream them for $1.99. Of course, I have the DVDs for sale. Or if you make a donation, why uh, I'll give you the DVD and give you a streaming link too. Or a book or Kindle book, whatever you want. You guys kind of know the drill by now if you've been listening to it. If not, just go to my donate page. One last thing, I've kind of dogged off on this PTSD thing. I used to always want to try to promote that. So if you've been listening to podcasts, you know what to do. But if you have any problems with PTSD and you know, and you're a veteran, then you know, go to the VA. If not, go to the VA website or just Google VA hospital PTSD and they've got a hotline and they've got a lot of resources. And even if you're not a veteran or if you just know a veteran, you can go there and find the resources. If you're not a veteran, you can go there and find resources. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey.